You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni. I'm Avram Kibalinich. And joining me in Yerushalayim, Irak, Kodesh, is the foremost uh, diagnostic psychologist in the planet, on the planet perhaps, if you believe what you read on our blurbs, Dr. Sam Juni. But today I think Dr. Juni um, is piqued by something that uh, isn't necessarily, I'm sure he has a psychological take on it, but he has told me that there's a topic here that he wants to discuss, and I don't want to uh, you know, go on about it. I want to let him describe it. It's a topic that in many ways has, since it burst into the world scene, I guess, in the uh, mid part of the 19th century or the latter part of the 19th century, um, has reared its ugly head um, famously and terribly uh, in the mid-20th century, but continues uh, to be something that uh, the world struggles with and tries to put into perspective, and uh, that is uh, anti-Semitism. The ideas that Jews don't know their place, the idea that Jews are pushing to take over, the idea that the Jewish presence in the world is a bane to society. And I know, uh, Dr. Juni, you told me that one of the reasons why you wanted to talk about this was because um, you want to talk about the, man- the interesting manifestations of anti-Semitism, even though it doesn't seem to the casual observer that it is. And um, you believe that this really is something that needs to be pointed out and illustrated. And um, so you know, I'm, I'm eager to hear what you, your take on this. So... I see your pencil is in hand. You've got your notes. So go ahead. And uh, as I say, sometimes uh, the mic is yours, Dr. J. Very well. So let me just start by saying that I was um, um, pushed into um, looking at this topic by a phenomenal um, thesis that I got from a prolific writer who is now an, actually he had gone to yeshiva with me many years ago. His name is J.J. Gross. He's now in Israel, and he does a lot of vlogging about the politics that are going on both here in America. And a particular title that uh, I came across was, it's titled Masculine and Feminine Anti-Semitism and Jewishness, colon, A View from Jerusalem. So let me just outline what it is that my interest here and my and my uh, my focus. Um, what JJ Gross is all excited about is the um, liberalism that exists among modern Jews today, and he sees that as directly responsible for the deterioration of Judaism, especially in the diaspora, and the way it's made Judaism as a religion subsidiary to democratic or socialist or egalitarian ideals to the detriment of Judaism itself. And he sees it as a basically, I mean, he's very, um, shall we say, excited in a negative way and the stress on Tikkun Olam by reform Judaism and sees that basically as a watering down or a dilution of what the Jewish ideals are supposed to be. And he sees um, that blending in with the um, 
egalitarian ideas, which unfortunately, because of intersectionalism, has become the platform of anti-Semitism as well. So that is a big mouthful, and I'll try to unpack it. What got me most excited about this is the um, degree of the Jewish self-hatred or identification with anti-Semitic or, um, shall we say, uh, non-denominational ideas, uh, like dating back from the uh, communist revolution, but continuing in the um, joining of forces by liberal Jews and by intellectual Jews against what they see as racism or prejudice. And in that, unfortunately, falls mainstream Jewish ideology in general, and especially the Israeli effort in specific. So that, that's my, my overall focus, my psychological bent, and you're sure, Rabbi, that, you know, obviously come from there as well, is um, trying to understand within this what's in it for the Jews. What do Jews get out of flagellating themselves and seeing themselves as an aggressor? I mean, I am an avid um, uh, reader of Haaretz. I read it every day um, to the um, consternation of a number of my family members who wouldn't touch it. But I find it quite revealing to see day after day Jewish intellectuals knocking, you might say, um, Israel, Jewish ideals, and ultimately themselves. And I see that as fitting in with some of the um, logic that we talked about in the past, which has to do with the whole prototypical Jewish humor, which is a humor against Jews by Jews. I wanted to say for Jews, but I'm not sure because it's by Jews, against Jews, but I'm not really sure who the consumer is, whether the consumer is other Jews, because other Jews find it funny, or the consumer is the Welt, the crowd out there, the world, where we're trying to say, look, we know our faults, and therefore we're good people, and unconsciously we're saying, so stop beating us up, because we're on your side, we're trying to do things, which is precisely what the motif was among the um, rabid uh, communists, during the revolution, where they actually persecuted Jews in a warped way, a warped uh, endeavor to save Jews from being persecuted, so they did the persecuting. So that's a that's a psychological topic that's the hook for me. But the basic thesis, especially Bagros's thesis, is, is fascinating. And he groups together um, the demise, basically, of liberal Judaism as a religion as witnessed by the amount of intermarriage that goes on, especially uh, outside of Israel, and the disidentification of second and third generations of whom we would expect to be Jews. They disidentify as Jews and don't really see themselves as Jews at all. And he sees it in tandem with the, a similar process that's going on in the Catholic Church. I mean, I just, yesterday, I saw this... Um, um, notice about vacancies, rentals being offered in various major um, religious institutions in the United States, Catholic and also mainstream Protestantism, in contrast to the um, evangelists. The evangelists are doing very well precisely because of their tradition, and you can actually draw a parallel between how well the evangelists are doing in terms of increasing their ranks and maintaining young people within it, to the way the Haredi population is thriving, both in Israel and in the United States, relatively speaking, 
to the rest of the organized Jewish religion. So the themes here are um, the um, magnet or the uh, attraction of liberalism to intellectual Jews, and also the idea that they then turn that by allying themselves to anti-Jewish people and anti-Israeli people, they align themselves with what can be seen as a very thinly masked anti-Semitism. It doesn't take much to go and see BLM as a uh, disguised, uh, as having a disguised component of anti-Semitism. It doesn't take much to do the same thing for J Street, although I personally don't think that, but it doesn't take much to view things that way. And it doesn't take much to see um, the um, socialist parties in Israel, and especially Meretz, as having an anti-Semitic agenda, literally. I mean, they definitely have an anti-official um, Jewish government as a, a, a agenda, but they also have an anti-Semitic agenda. It doesn't take much to go there. Let me, um, let, let, let me just yeah. jump in here and, and, you know, in a sort of rabbinic fashion, say that when you take God out of the picture, when you take a creator who has commands and has desires for what his people should do specifically out of the picture, then what you do have is basically, okay, we don't deny the fact that we are part of a historical tradition that has given the idea of compassion, love, a better society to the world the way it's described in the Bible, but this is a, a, a book that was really inspired by human beings and the better part of them. So, though they don't deny historically they're genetically connected to the Jews who uh, populated uh, the world in uh, 2,000 years ago, um, they believe that that itself is a myth, the idea that there is a God who spoke to them at Sinai and gave them these uh, ideas. Um, they believe that's a very, it was, it was a myth that was necessary uh, to create cohesion in a world that was dark. But now that the general population has somehow emerged from the Middle Ages, has gone into the Enlightenment, and we all know, um, again, this is a liberal perspective, so let's take whatever Judaism had that was positive and add it to the general perspective of, like you say, tikkun changing the world, uh, uh, making the world fair, uh, universal health care, whatever else you want to put in there, um, uh, working on a global warming. Um, I know that you've written an article that we joked around about a number of years ago about um, being green and, and, and that being the flag that we should be holding. But from their perspective, that is the natural progression of what the good part of Judaism is supposed to be. Everything else is a vestigial remnant of something that is um, uh, steeped in uh, superstition and something that's patently untrue. I think if you'd ask them in their heart of hearts, do you think God spoke to the Jewish people at Sinai? Do you think that there was a, a creator who created man out of dust and, and, and blew into his nostrils? That's just a, a metaphor of some great idea. And therefore... I think in their hearts they can say, I'm, I'm sort of happy the Jews have been in the world, but now it's time to step away and really be part of the big system. And the more we cling to this tribalism, the more we're impeding uh, mankind's progress in, on the planet. And I think that's, that, that, that is, I think, where they're at. 
and, and if that's true, and that's true in Israel, surprisingly, because if, you know, even though they love, they love that they have people that sort of look like them and can speak Hebrew together, but ultimately they're missing that component. And that's really almost, I'm not saying it's natural, but it's really understandable. That's where they're at. So it, it bothers the hell out of them that people keep on wanting them to, um, to, to be part of uh, the certain clan. Um, and I think that's, you know, again, that, that to me is, 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 is the way I see it. Just, and, I, and I did have the chance last night, very late, uh, to read this article that you're very excited about. I, I didn't get all, all the way through it. Um, I, I, I understand that, uh, that it's a privately circulated article, so I won't be able to, uh, in, our, in our notes, that me and you work so hard on in terms of uh, getting it exactly correct to describe this episode. I won't be able to hyperlink that article uh, to, to, to people. Um, and I guess it's, um, but I guess this uh, Rabbi or Mr. or Professor Gross, you could probably find his views on this topic other places as well, correct? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him anyway if it can be hyperlinked. I don't know exactly its status. But I wanted to point something out. You're pointing here to a certain fault line, which I'm very familiar with, actually between contemporary reform Judaism versus conservative Judaism. I think the idea of the Torah being of divine origin will find some resonance among some of the Talmudic scholars within conservative Judaism these days. But what I wanted to point out is that part of the negative reaction by the Orla Goyen theology, shall we say, which is primarily within the Reformed denomination fold, is that um, they don't like it to have an elitist quality to it. In other words, the purpose of Judaism really was to convert all of humanity to having proper values, godlike values, I don't know if they'd use that terminology, but proper moral and, and um, pro-social values. And the elitism that arose from that was fodder for anti-Semitism. And that if only we can chuck that and become just basic moral leaders without the idea that we're special, the specialness is what hurt us, I was most impressed when I was teaching at NYU. We had a, um, an academic affiliation with Hebrew Union College, which is the Reformed Rabbinical School. And I would have uh, some rabbis often taking my courses. And I remember once having a, a rabbi who I got, you know, fairly close to socially. And he told me outright that he and quite a few other um, uh, alumni of the school are blatant atheists. They have no pretension of believing in God. They see themselves as social moral leaders getting their wisdom from these ancient texts. So that, that's kind of interesting. So, so that sort of corroborates exactly what I'm yes. saying. So for, for, uh, for the reform Judaism, but just remember that Erla Goyim and pro-social values are part of mainstream conservative Judaism, and you definitely cannot brush them with that broad, uh, with that broad stroke, although some people there rightfully belong in terms of the um, theologically in the reform camp. Well, I just want to mention one key just, just, let, me, let, let, me, let me just respond yes. to that for a second. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, I, I'm going to use the old line, some of my best friends. You know, I grew up, uh, in, in, you know, me and you were sort of in the same vintage. When we were growing up, conservative Judaism had a much uh, more vibrant um, uh, world. They they actually did a lot more um, 
they were responsible for many, many of the, the programs that were going on. And, and I, I talked to you before we started recording about chaplaincies and other things like that throughout. Uh, conservative Judaism, uh, we all know, is in decline. It was, in the past, uh, a very strong and one of the main, it was probably in the 40s and 50s, for many people, that's what it, uh, a Jew looked like. I remember, mm-hmm. um, uh, you might, again, I, I like throwing in these, you know, off, you know, they're, they're sort of off the wall social references. But to me, it isn't just my brain going in a strange place. It was for many people in the 50s and 60s what they expected a Jew to be like. Do you remember Harry Kemmelman's book, Friday the Rabbi Slept Late? Sure. And all okay. the other, and all the others, every single right. one. Right. Yes. Right. So that was, uh, that was like, oh, 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 wow, here's the newest detective craze. This is what the Jewish rabbi was meant to look like, right? The conservative rabbi who was knowledgeable, like he had a certain, yeah, yeah he wasn't orthodox, but he definitely had a synagogue. So, Kemmelman's rabbi of the 50s and 60s was, for many people, oh, that's the Jew. That's the one who's on sermonette at night. We, we all know that conservative Judaism is in a very, very strong decline. Um, you know, and, 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 and the, the, numbers real, the numbers really reflect that. And I'm not saying there wasn't an intellectual power to it. Uh, Solomon Schechter was definitely a very interesting person. Zachariah Frank. We could talk about conservative Judaism and historical Judaism. But I, I would like to say they are pretty marginal uh, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not ready. There's wads of cash still left there for the vultures to, 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 to harvest in some way. And there's still buildings and, and, and edifices there. But I think And the seminary is still vibrant. Yeah, okay, right. But 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 in terms of reflecting what is the mindset of this is the Judaism that I'm about, I think the trends will show that it, it's going to decline and become very, very insignificant, uh, if it isn't already. So I think they're off the table, to tell you the truth. But 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 I, I know where you wanted to go with this. This was a, a, something that struck you as being essentially true, but... Give me a little bit, and our listeners, your psychological take of why Jews should flock to something, as you say, that flagellates where they where they come from. Why should okay. Jews? Why should Jews be so comfortable, whether it's in Israel or here, um, um, hearing or writing and espousing in their minds uh, such negative things about? They're not, and they're not Borschtel comedians who are going to get a paycheck for it. What is the psychological paycheck that they're getting from it? And, and how would you describe that? Okay, so again, I want to appeal to J.J. Gross's paper as my basis and um, what he calls feminine anti-Semitism, which really has a lot of Jewish proponents to it. And I want to link it to a concept that I once heard from Rabbi Bergman of Mizrahi that he liked to typify, and this was in the 60s, not that much after World War II, typifying what he called a gullus complex among Jews. And I think really it has its roots, has its roots in Herzl's, Theodor Herzl's uh, sociology, where he felt that Jews are in a certain position because um, they are not in a position of power, they have no one who can help them out, and that's why their identity suffers. And he, I mean, his first idea was to have all Jews convert to Christianity, which would get rid of the Jewish problem, so to speak, because there won't be Jews anymore. And when he saw that that didn't go too well in terms of the overall Christian community wanting to, not, not wanting to accept Jews, he, that's when he switched to the Zionist ideal. But the notion of the Gullus complex is that we are being persecuted for certain traits that we have and certain kinds of 
predispositions that we have. And if we can just publicly disavow that, then we will be loved by our non-Jewish neighbors, which uh, historically has not worked out too well. Um, historically, what happened is, I mean, okay, there are different interpretations of the origins of anti-Semitism, but Jews have been outsiders forever. And there is an interesting sociological theory that Jews were kept as outsiders forever because you had warring nations and empires that had to do business and negotiations with each other. And they had to have essentially a um, semi-fifth column, so to speak, of a culture where a small segment of their population could act as mediators between the different cultures, and that was their role for the Jews. So they never really wanted the Jews to become German or Prussian or English or Turkish. They wanted them to be outsiders with their own language, which they share in common with the other outsiders and other cultures, and they then can be the mediators who will bring richness, fame, fortune, and colonies to all of them. So I am not, you know, at all convinced that it's something about the Jews themselves which made them targets for anti-Semitism, except in Christianity. I think Christ killing is not an excuse. I think Christ killing was basically an accusation that really fanned the flames of anti-Semitism forever. And it's not some kind of made-up story. It's something that the peasants really believed. And of course, the rulers were able to fire up their peasants when they needed a deflection from their own misdoings onto the Jews. But Jew hatred has always been there. But the Gullus complex, which is basically what um, J.J. Gross sees as the Antichrist, so to say, the, the theme that Israel is supposed to combat and get rid of is that if only perspective, if only we can be nice, if only we can show them that we go the extra mile and really care about them, whatever, they would not hate us. And with that, of course, when it goes one generation away from being um, steeped in terms of Jewish education, personally, then it becomes, well, why shouldn't I tell them I am so much like them that I, I can even outguide them? I can have a Christmas tree that's bigger than them. I can go for uh, buying a yacht that's bigger than theirs. I can act like a guy who's even a bigger guy than they are. But the main notion is, therefore, in a feminine way, in a um, underhanded way, instead of taking him and somebody says something against the Jew, you beat the hell out of him, you say, no, I'm going to be nice to him and become his friend. And therefore, by befriending the bully, he will not beat me up anymore and see that I'm really part of it. And he'll invite me to his parties and introduce me to all his girlfriends or whatever kinds of fantasies that there, there are. And obviously, I'm speaking about this in a pejorative way. First of all, because I think it's giving up who you really are for something who you really aren't. But pragmatically speaking, it doesn't work. You cannot placate a bully. You can either beat him up and then suffer some broken teeth in the process, or you can run away. That's my psychological spin on what I um, got out of this entire thesis. Well, I, I think it's, you know, I read it too, and I think that there are, uh, I think for it to go public, just between me and you, and I'm not a, a big maven on, um, you know, on, on theological or sociological articles or historical articles. Well, I'm a little bit of a maven in, in, in the latter. Um, but I would say that, um, that you have to be careful in terms of his feminine and masculine, although he doesn't say it's about men and women, 
I think that he might have to up and he might have to change that. And there was another thing that he wrote about, which is something that you have just spoken about, which is I want to have the bigger yacht and um, et cetera. I want to, you know, to make the money and to be involved and to actually be very, very successful. Um, and he talks about um, um, acquiring wealth like Episcopalians and voting like Puerto Ricans. I don't know. He keeps on that as a, a line that he would probably have to expunge from the public. <laughs> if you want to be politically correct, sure. But he keeps on writing that over and over again uh, about that. He must have mentioned it four or five times. Um, and he also mentioned Studi Kravitz's uncle, which I know was totally lost on you. That that are... not lost on me. I know I know the oh. uncle, and I know some oh. of his nephews as well. Oh, so you read Mordechai Richler's uh, book on uh, Tiddy Kravitz or the apprenticeship? Yes, sir. Kravitz. Yes, yeah. sir. Okay. Anyway, so there was a lot of references that took me back, um, and, and and those references, I think, we're we're, we're talking about um, actually. Uh, realizing that there's this hatred there, but I'm going to make all this money. I'm going to be obsequious. I'm going to be submissive. But really, I, I recognize that I'm something different. We recognize, you know, Judy Kravitz's uncle recognizes that uh, he doesn't, Judy, a Jew isn't going to go away. And I guess um, from a psychological standpoint, um, you know, you, you said there's a social reason to keep, or a political reason or economic reason to keep the Jews as the other, um, you know, the Medrash says that this is uh, this is Masayri Yeshvanu or Halacha Yeshvanu, some sort of language. Halacha Yedua, right? Halacha Yedua that Esav Sayyid Yaakov, and and many of the writers of the 19th century, the Mitzvah very famously in his essay Sherei Yisrael, writes about the fact that that it ain't going to work. God, you know, uh, put this into the Bria, so to speak. In order to protect us, and as much as, uh, and of course, the same. You mean to protect our lifestyle, right? In other words, the, the hatred, which will cover, shouldn't be here anymore, right? The fact is, is that the, um, especially the liberal wing of Judaism, there shouldn't be any callouts anymore about the Benjamins. There shouldn't be any callout anymore about, hey, Axelrod, you know, you, you know, now you're showing your Jewish. Uh, you, you know, you, right, especially after Vatican, to, you know, the Vatican. The but but you still, again, what you see in the left uh, and in the media, there's still the call out against the Jew, even the even the ones that have embraced uh, uh, the liberal causes completely. We saw it, you know, even in the night. You know, it, it's occurred since the late 1960s, when, as we know, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, when Jews were really the African Americans' strongest ally. They were they were the, the authors, the lawyers, uh, the ACLU, the ones who who did so much, and the semi theologians as well, right? Yeah, including AJ Heschel and others who were who were who, who, who were the ones who were providing that theological perspective of what Martin Luther King was pushing to make it universal, but also the ones that were working in the neighborhoods of Newark and in Selma and everywhere throughout the South. And, and, and that we saw there was a point that uh, the African-American leaders said, well, this is not for you. Goodbye. And, you know, we're happy that you gave us our money. But and then you started hearing a lot of um, and I'm not talking about Farrakhan. I'm talking about in general. The idea is, is that thank you very much. But this is still you're the Jew. You can't really go with us. Like if a- I can interject with, with a, a cute story, um, we did years of research here with the Arab population, and we were basically a group of Americans, 
not identified as Jews at all, American academicians, and we would go to these little dinky cities, Arab cities, and they would level with us and say, you know, we understand you guys, you're Americans, but what's with these Jewish guys? They have Jewish guys coming here trying to help us. We don't trust them. They're a bunch of phonies. They're bums. They hate us. So these, and actually we were first introduced to all these towns. I had no idea where they were. We were introduced by the liberal academic um, uh, faculty at Tel Aviv University. And when we got there and they realized that we weren't part of them, they told me, what's with these guys? What are they doing here? You know, you guys, we can talk to those guys. We don't know where they're up to. And that was so reminiscent of what I didn't hear directly, but I heard secondhand in my work in New York. I worked in Harlem for many years. I mean, I was involved with mental health. I was not involved with trying to improve anybody's social or cultural uh, uh, emancipation, but the same kind of comments about those whiteies, not the whitey who, who rides by in this Cadillac, but the whitey who spends time being a social worker, saying, what's with those guys? What's with them? So it's an interesting parallel. Yeah, in terms of this mistrust, so this is where people from the rabbinical world and, 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 and the people of the Darshanim say, you see, God is not letting this happen. So as much as, you know, uh, Dr. Gross, I guess he has a doctorate, your friend, right? He definitely should. I don't know. He's good. Okay. <laughs> He's more of, of the lawyer, um, um, a QA type. Okay. Um, well, if he is a lawyer, he's a doctor of jurisprudence. I'll find out. I'll find out. Is it, anyway, as much as he, you know, I, I think that this is something that, you know, from my wheelhouse, it says, yeah, you know what? This is really uh, the, the proof that, that, that Ravona Shalom is still protecting us in some way. I know what he's arguing for is more of the masculine uh, approach, the Jabotinsky approach. He wants, he feels that the tough Israel, the Israel that, that doesn't uh, kowtow to the other powers, uh, that's the one that's going to gain if any respect in the world. That's going to be the one. And that's the one that somehow uh, is more in line with, I don't know if he gets that far, with Republican values here in the United States as well. I think he's sort of I think he's sort of inching towards that because he seems to be very, very uh, upset about uh, about the, the left, you know, the Jewish. I mean, the main the main line that I, it comes through there, although not necessarily directly, is basically trying to vindicate such activists like Mary Kahana or even Avi Weiss, saying, you know, we're going to stand up for Soviet Jewry, we're going to stand up for Jewish rights, and we're not going to do it by playing, you know, buddy with you and taking abuse, benign abuse. That's yeah. the main theme. And right. that finds resonance in the number of people, including me. Well, we'll see. Maybe we can get Avi Weiss to read the paper and maybe come on with us and, and respond. Because I don't think he would agree with many of the principles that are... That Precisely. Are, Precisely. I, I, I think part of, you know, some of the things that uh, he really rails about in this article, if, if there is no link to this, people are going to be hearing this program and saying, these guys were just talking about something nobody, we don't even know what, he, what they're talking about. One of I the things I, <laughs> I, I just want to end on this. One of the things he talks about is the fact that the um, the, the Hebrew Aid Association uh, that was at the forefront of settling um, uh, refugees from Arab countries uh, that were being decimated by civil war and by other persecution, that that was the agency, that, that was like the, 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 um, the great agencies of the Jews right now. Not necessarily uh, trying to push people to go to Israel. They're, 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 it's almost like 
we're not even the Hebrew aid anymore. That's just a, uh, an old title. What we're about is making sure America can be a safe haven. For- and I'd like to concatenate that with many of the um, Holocaust institutions, the Wiesenthal centers that dropped Jewish. They became tolerance institutions and the, it became, it started as a memorial to what happened to Jews during the uh, Holocaust, and then the Jews have been dropped from there. You go to some of these places and to find Jews, you have to go in the room on the second floor. And, but I think uh, Gross also mentions that they're not, it's not working. <laughs> in other words, with all right. the, with all the uh, enforced legislation in New Jersey and other places that you need to take Holocaust courses, you're not seeing any drop in terms of uh, anti-Semitic actions. One thing I will say that bothered me in the article that I think is a, is a terrible overstatement, and I'll say it here on the record, he said he doesn't think that the ADL um, has done anything, hasn't saved anyone. He makes this very broad statement that the, the Anti-Defamation League has done zero. Like he says they have not saved one person or helped one person. You know, I think his proofreaders, you know, his fact checkers need to go and, and, and maybe alter that point. Clearly, the ADL is, a, is, a, is sort of a checkered history, but I'm happy that there was an anti-defamation league, and I think they, I think that historically they they probably could have done more, and they've sided with the left maybe uh, more than they should for Israel for things in Eretz Israel. But I think he doesn't disservice by um, by uh, basically um, uh, <laughs> you know throwing shade at them, as we say, and saying that they really did zero. Okay, look, I think that the um, uh, I think we've talked about this. At least we've given people a tremendous interest to, uh, and hopefully uh, helped increase his his social media site. Uh, uh, um, your friend, uh, JJ Gross, is that his name? Yes, it is. All right. So everybody, uh, if, if, if those type of articles keeps uh, Dr. Sam Juni uh, intellectually a fire intellectual fire under his seat, I'm happy. Uh, to hear his fulminations and his observations in that way, because that keeps this program going. So that's about it, I think, for this week. Uh, we'll see you, we'll see you, Shem, on the other side. Hopefully, next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.